Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. What is the best diet? There are many considerations when you ask that question. One is just personal preference, of course, and that's going to vary from person to person. And another is environmental impact. There are moral and ethical questions that people have about how they eat. But really, if we're looking at it from a health perspective, at the most basic level, we have to start with the question, well, okay, will this diet meet our nutrient needs? Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I'm talking with the Chris Cresser all about nutrient deficiencies and feeding your body right. Chris is a world-renowned expert, clinician, and practitioner of integrative and functional medicine. He is the creator of one of the world's most respected natural health sites, chriscresser.com, and a New York Times best-selling author. He's on a mission for people to really understand the importance of nutrient deficiencies as they are often overlooked and misunderstood. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Chris Cresser, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I am super excited that you're here today. Carrie, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm actually beyond excited. One, because this fangirl moment, I've known who you were for a long time. And obviously, in our field, we bump up along very similar people. And when I used to work at Dutch, obviously, you had a lot of interactions with Dutch through the years. And so today, I'm really excited to talk to you Zoom face to Zoom face as we talk about nutrient deficiency, because I know that's a huge passion of yours as it relates to education and getting the word out. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's strangely enough. I mean, it's very well established that nutrient deficiency is a global problem, not just in the developing world, but also in developed countries like the US and Canada, UK. I think a lot of people have misapprehension that it's just an issue in the developing world. And even a cursory glance at the scientific literature will confirm this. And yet, I don't think it really gets that much airplay, uh, even in the functional and integrative medicine world. Certainly, some people talk more about it than others. But a lot of the focus over the last few decades has been on macronutrients, right? Should we do low-carb? Should it be low-fat? Then carnivore or plant-based? And very little focus on the micronutrients, the vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients that really are the fuel that enable all of the different functions to happen in the body. And as I get older and as I think more about how I want to contribute and what my legacy might be, I started to think, what is one area that is, or one issue that is widespread that affects almost everybody but that is actually relatively easy to fix. We have these other global health problems like environmental toxicity and depletion of soil quality and changes to the microbiome that happen even before we're born because we have no control over or very little control over as individuals. But with nutrient status is actually one something that we can influence, all of us. And so it's relatively low-hanging fruit and it's the rising tide that lifts all boats. Because everything depends on nutrient status, if you improve that, everything else will get better. So this is kind of my mission. <laughs> I don't want to say in life because life is a long time, but it's my mission right now. I love that. And actually, a rising tide lifts all boats is one of my most favorite phrases. So I can appreciate when you say that. And as we dive into this, I think it's going to hit home for a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. On social media right now, there's Everybody wants to know, quote, what's the perfect diet? Should I be carnivore? Should I be vegan? Should I be paleo? Should I be et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And when it comes 
to nutrients, we hear of the we hear of the sexy ones, the popular ones, vitamin D and magnesium and a few other big ones. But when you're talking education globally with people around nutrients, how do you explain it? How do you explain, you know what, this is a big problem. Here's what we need to be looking for, or here's why it's beyond just should I be vegan or should I be carnivore? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think that we can use nutrient status and nutrient availability as a frame for answering that question that so many people have of what is the best diet? Well, there are many considerations when you ask that question. One is just personal preference, of course, and that's going to vary from person to person. And another is environmental impact. There are moral and ethical questions that people have about how they eat. But really, if we're looking at it from a health perspective, at the most basic level, we have to start with the question, well, okay, will this diet meet our nutrient needs, right? And there's two types of nutrients. We just talked about both of them, macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, and fat. So one question is, will this diet give me adequate amounts of each of those macronutrients? And then the next question is, will it give me adequate amounts of the micronutrients? And you can assess a diet very objectively. <laughs> like, forget about all of the vitriol and the crazy <laughs> polarized arguments on social media. It's relatively easy to look at these diets from an objective perspective in terms of these nutrient questions. And so we can talk about macros if you want to, but I think it's probably more helpful to focus on the micronutrient value of these different diets because that's really hasn't been done so much. When we break it down further into micronutrients, it turns out that there's two main categories of nutrients that we need. There are nutrients that we get from animal foods. Those are primarily the essential vitamins and minerals. And when I say essential, this has a specific meaning that you're aware of, of course, Carrie, but for the listeners, it doesn't just mean really important. It means the body cannot produce these nutrients on its own and we need to obtain them from the diet. And if we don't, very bad things can happen all the way up to death. So that's what essential means in this context. And so we're talking about vitamin B12, heme iron, zinc, preformed vitamin A, retinol, creatine, taurine, vitamin K2, vitamin D, high quality protein, bioavailable protein that you can easily absorb. There's a macronutrient. DHA and EPA are not currently considered essential nutrients. These are the long chain omega-3 fats. They're precursors, ALA, and LA are considered essential, but there's actually a movement in the scientific community to reclassify EPA and DHA as essential because so the conversion of those shorter chain fatty acids that the precursor omega-3s and is so poor from alpha-linolenic acid to EPA and DHA that many people need to consume those preformed long-chain omega-3 fats like in seafood or algae in order to meet their dietary need for them. So all of those nutrients that I just mentioned are either exclusively or primarily found in animal foods. That's not just me, my opinion. You can look this up in any kind of nutritional textbook and find this out. So it's an objective truth. Now, if you're eating an exclusively plant-based diet, that doesn't mean you can't get these nutrients in other ways through supplementation or in some cases, precursor nutrients that could be converted. But you absolutely have to be aware and acknowledge that animal foods are a much greater, better source of these essential vitamins and minerals. Now, on the flip side, so the carnivores are cheering right now. They're like, <laughs> all right. I'm, but I'm going to, then there's the flip side. So there are certain nutrients, uh, one essential nutrient, vitamin C, that is almost exclusively found in plant foods. Adrenal glands do have some vitamin C. So if you're eating adrenal glands, which I would guess precisely zero people that are listening, <laughs> maybe two or three that are taking them as a supplement or eating them, but not very many people. So you have to get that from plant foods. And then there are a whole bunch of phytonutrients now that have been identified over the past couple of decades. I want to be clear, these are not considered essential in the same way that we literally can't live without them. 
but we might not live very long without them or we might not live very well without them. So these are nutrients like carotenoids, lycopene, beta carotene, lutein, zeaxanthin, which people have heard of, dialyl sulfides. So that those are phytonutrients present in the allium class of vegetables, garlic being a great example, polyphenols, flavonoids like quercetin and flavanones, lignans, plant sterols and stanols, isothiocyanates and indoles, and then fiber, which doesn't actually nourish us, but does feed the beneficial bacteria in our gut, which virtually everybody knows now <laughs> is important. You see this on even the cover of Time magazine and every major newspaper. We all know how important gut health is. So if you're only eating animal foods, you're going to miss out on these phytonutrients, which have been shown to play a really important role in our health and longevity. If you're only eating plant foods, you're much more likely to miss out on the essential vitamins and minerals that we know are absolutely necessary for health and well-being. And like I said, in either case, there are things you can do, ways to supplement, workarounds, et cetera. But that's, in my opinion, always going to be less advantageous than just consuming those nutrients in food form. Mm -hmm. So two questions. One, you know people right now listening are going, is there a test? Can I just do a test and find this out? The second question they're going to ask is, well, oh gosh, my diet is not that diverse. I'm going to increase my diversity. And does our food system nowadays and our soil quality allow for us to get the amount we need? Yeah, those are both good questions. So the first question, is there a test? My answer is, I so wish that there was. <laughs> uh, it would, I know. It would make my life so much easier and your life so much easier and everyone's life so much easier. But there is not a single test. And it, well, let me rephrase that. There are single tests out there that are marketed as the solution to this problem, but none of them are evidence-based. And the, the reason for that is that you have to look at each nutrient individually. Each nutrient is stored, metabolized, and processed in the body in a different way. And so you can't just take a sample of a certain body fluid like blood or serum or saliva or urine or even a tissue sample and expect to find all of the nutrients there that you want to find. So let me just give you a couple of examples. One is calcium. So calcium is maintained in an extremely narrow range in our blood. And if it drops below that range or goes above that range, you're basically on the way to the hospital. <laughs> it's that serious. It's life-threatening. And so if calcium starts to go out of range, the body will because of low calcium intake in the diet, the body will remove calcium from the bones. And this is, of course, why low dietary intake of calcium leads to osteopenia and osteoporosis, because the body will do anything it can, including compromise your bone health and your long-term health, to maintain that very narrow range of calcium in the blood, because that is an acute, life-threatening situation if you don't. The body will always prioritize survival over any long-term benefit, which makes sense, right? That's probably what we want. So what happens when you measure calcium in the blood? What does that tell you? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> it always looks good. <laughs> it tells you that you're not dead and that you're not probably on the way to the hospital if it's in the normal range. Okay, so that's a big problem. And you can't calcium in the urine is not an accurate measure of calcium status. In the hair, it's not really a particularly accurate measure. And so we're really stuck with that. We have... It's, this seems super low tech, but we mostly have to rely on dietary survey to assess calcium intake, like using an app like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal, where you just carefully track what you eat for five days. It will spit back a daily average of calcium intake. And I mean, it seems incredibly absurd in 2022 that that's how we have to assess calcium, but that's the situation that we're in. Iodine is another example. It's You can do a 24-hour urine iodine test, and that will give you some information. But what it will tell you is what your most recent intake of iodine was over that 24-hour period. It does not tell you long-term iodine status. You can measure iodine in hair, and that will give you some idea of long-term iodine status. You can also measure a marker called thyroglobulin. 
which is related to the thyroid, but is actually can be a decent marker of long-term iodine status. Magnesium. This one is super tricky because 99.5% of the magnesium that's in the body at any given time is stored inside of the cell or even inside of the bones or the tissue. And so if you measure magnesium in the serum, you're only measuring one half of 1% of the magnesium that's in the body. The best way to assess magnesium status, like gold standard, is to do a buccal swab. That's a cheek swab. You rub around a little Q-tip type of thing and you collect cells and then you send that off to a lab and they do an intracellular magnesium assessment. That's about 250 bucks for that one single (laughs) nutrient. (laughs) So you get the picture, right? It's not to really accurate put together an assessment of all of the different nutrients. You're talking about multiple different tests, multiple different body fluids or tissues, and probably thousands of dollars. So this is where it becomes really important to understand the nutritional value of different foods and dietary approaches because we can't easily rely on testing. Right. So do you have any questions about that before I move on to part two? <laughs> that was probably a longer answer no. than you were expecting. but <laughs> No, actually it was perfect because I would say those are definitely top nutrients. Magnesium is a big one on how to test. And calcium, iodine, obviously all of them. That's why I laughed when you mentioned all of them because I thought, oh yes, they're quite controversial is not the right word, but they're commonly discussed. Let's say that on social media where people feel there is a perfect test, not realizing the big nuances. And as somebody recently said to me, testing magnesium is like all the people are in their homes. Magnesium is in a home. And so if you're just looking up and down the street for the people, that which is your blood, right? Your artery, you're drawing your blood. It's You're not going to find it. All the people are in the home. And so, but yet, unfortunately, these tests are run quite regularly. And unfortunately, maybe people are told they are, aren't sufficient or deficient when it was just a misunderstanding on how the nutrient works. So I'm really actually glad you gave those examples because I know someone listening is going, damn, I just had that test. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to be, I mean, and there's so much, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast <laughs> on just this particular question, but there's so much nuance. Like, so with magnesium, It is true that there is a correlation between serum magnesium levels and intracellular tissue magnesium levels, which is what you really want to see. And so if you see a very low serum magnesium, it's pretty likely that you also have low tissue magnesium. And if you see very high serum magnesium, it's also likely that you have low tissue magnesium. So it's not like they're completely unrelated and that there's zero value in doing a serum or red blood cell magnesium test, I still do them with patients, but you have to take it with a grain of salt and you have to realize there are situations where it's not going to be accurate and reliable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. On to the next half of the question. Yeah. So this one is not a short answer either, but... That's okay. Yeah. So there's been a profound change, of course, in the last 100, 200 years in the modern world that we live in, everybody's aware of this. And one, some of the biggest changes that affect nutrient availability are one that you mentioned, a, cha- a decline in soil quality. Nutrients come from the soil. And that's even how plants get nutrients. They take them up out of the soil, right? And so if there's a shift in soil quality, then that's going to impact every type of diet, whether you eat plants or animals, because guess what animals eat? <laughs> plants. So if the plants are lower nutrients, the animals will have lower nutrient content. We're eating the animals and the plants. We're going to extract lower amounts of nutrition no matter what. And some soil scientists that I've interviewed on my own podcast and talked to have helped educate me on this. It's not so much that the nutrients are not there in the soil anymore. It's that we've disrupted the soil microbiome. So people can probably understand this analogy. There's lots of microbes in the soil. And one of the roles that the microbes play is that they actually help plants to extract the nutrition from the soil. And when when you disrupt the microbiome of the soil through pesticides, herbicides, monocropping, industrial agricultural techniques, tillage, all of this sort of pretty brutal ways that we attack the soil, then what happens is the plants are not, no longer able to extract the nutrients in the same way 
that they were before the soil microbiome was disrupted. And this can have a, a just enormous impact on the nutrient levels in food. One of the quotes from a paper that I read that has always stuck with me is that we would have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of nutrition that our grandparents got from just one orange. That's terrifying <laughs> if you think about it, because we're not talking about changes over thousands of years. That's two generations. We're talking about 60 to 80 years in recent past that there's been that kind of precipitous decline in the nutrient value of food. And you see this across lots of different nutrients, magnesium, essential vitamins and minerals, and then phytonutrients as well. So that's one cause. Another cause is just the globalization of the food system. We know that a plant will stop, start losing nutritional value as soon as you harvest it, right? And so I'm sure most people have heard the statistic that the average carrot has traveled 1,800 miles before it gets to our plate. Hopefully people are shopping at farmer's markets or doing that to minimize that travel. But if you're just going into Safeway or Vons or any kind of, or Whole Foods for that matter, and you're buying produce there, chances are it's been shipped for hundreds of miles. And so it gets harvested out of the ground. It stays in a dark truck. It travels for miles and miles. It goes into a warehouse that's also dark, comes into the food to the store in the back. It's probably dark. <laughs> Finally gets put out onto the shelves and eventually gets purchased. Who knows how much time has passed. And during that time, nutritional value is being lost every minute. And so that's another big cause of lower nutrient value because even our grandparents ate food that was mostly local because we didn't have the infrastructure that we have now. I was involved, unfortunately, a few years ago, I got food poisoning in the Bay Area and it turned out it was a Vietnamese, really good quality Vietnamese restaurant that we ate out at one night and the basil was contaminated and the basil had come from Guatemala and was washed in contaminated water in Guatemala and shipped to this really nice restaurant in the Bay Area. Like that's our reality now at this point. So that's another reason. And then, I mean, there's nine or 10, but I'm going to stick with three. So we just don't go on and on. Uh, the third reason would be environmental toxins. So which you're well aware of, we have heavy metals like lead, mercury, cadmium, arsenic that are ubiquitous in the food supply, unfortunately. And then we have things like glyphosate and bisphenol A and or a whole bunch of organic toxins that pesticides, herbicides, all of these toxins decrease nutrient absorption because nutrients will bind to these toxins in an effort to protect us. A calcium is a great example of that. And then we don't absorb the calcium or the toxin, which is good because calcium is sort of taken one for the team, so to speak. But then we don't get the calcium, even if we're eating it. So I'll sneak a fourth one in really quickly. <laughs> I mentioned the disrupted microbiome of the soil, but we also have disrupted microbiomes. And guess what? The microbes play the same role in our gut that they do in the soil. They help us to absorb and digest nutrients. So if we have SIBO or dysbiosis or undetected parasite infection or fungal overgrowth or any number of other GI conditions, which are, are again, just shockingly common at this point, then we're not going to absorb the same level of nutrition from the same meal as someone else sitting right next to us, optimal gut health. So yeah, those are four out of the 10, <laughs> 10 reasons. A little depressing, but it's the world we live in. So it, for me, it's like the sooner we accept that and then take appropriate action, the better off we're going to be. Which is the next question. Obviously, I was going to say this sounds a little doom and gloom. What can people do? If we pivot this to proactivity, what do you tell people? Yeah, so when I first started my career, I got into functional medicine via nutrition. Like I was very sick myself and it was a paleo type of diet that brought me back from the brink. And the healing power of nutrition was really my entry point into all of this. So early on in my career, I was kind of my firm desire or hope, I guess I could say, was that we could meet all of our nutrient needs through food alone. Certainly our ancestors did. And we're humans are adapted to getting nutrients from food. That's how we've always got them. I think it's much harder to cause problems with over 
consuming nutrients with food, whereas you can do that with supplements. And so I really wanted that to be true. <laughs> and to be honest, I think I was a little bit stubborn about that for a while. And I, it took me longer than I would like to admit to fully accept that we're not living in that world anymore. And it is no longer possible, in my opinion, to meet all of our nutrient needs through food alone. And there was like a one or two year period where I was just sitting with that going, man, this sucks. Like, I don't want to have to take supplements. I just want to be able to eat a really clean, nutrient-dense diet and call it a day. Like, I'm pretty bad with taking supplements, actually, for a clinician. <laughs> I have to admit, like, I'm not a good patient that way. I have to set reminders, and I just don't like to do it. I would rather not. In fact, I don't know that many people who love to the experience of taking supplements. But at some point, I just like, okay... I have to just accept that this is the world we're living in. It's rather than trying to pretend that things are in an ideal way that they're not, I just want to respond in an appropriate way that accepts reality as it is. And so that's when I started to really do a deep dive into the scientific literature, read all of the study papers I could get my hands on, on nutrient availability and bioavailability and which nutrients most of us fall short on what the optimal level of each nutrient is, which is in general much higher than the RDA, which we can come back to because I'm trying to be optimally healthy and not die <laughs> or, or avoid scurvy or rickets. I'm setting my sights a little higher than avoiding <laughs> rickets or scurvy in my life. And so, yeah, I basically came to understand that there are some nutrients that I think that are quite easy to meet our needs through food alone, but then there are others that are either difficult or maybe in some cases impossible. And those are nutrients that we need to supplement with. So going back to the RDA question, because of course that is a big one, especially because maybe in the more conventional world, you will hear practitioners say, no, no, you're fine. You hit the RDA or that food hits the RDA. So you don't actually need to supplement. And I absolutely love that you, you know, explain the difference between maybe a minimum viable and outright optimal. And hopefully everyone listening here wants to be outright optimal. So can you explain the RDA for those who don't know and then what you mean by that? Yeah. There are lots of problems with the RDA. But even before we dive into that, if we just use the RDA as the benchmark, which as I said, is, and you'll see is woefully inadequate, still over a third of Americans are at risk for at least one vitamin deficiency or anemia with hundreds of thousands of people at risk for multiple deficiencies, even using that really low bar as a cutoff. And if you look at the Linus Pauling Institute statistics, they're even more shocking. It's like 100% of people don't get enough potassium, 94% vitamin D, 92% choline, 89% vitamin E. So we're not talking about like, oh, it's one out of 20 or one out of 30. We're talking about pretty much everybody. I was like, dang near 100. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the RDA, most people don't know this, but the RDAs were originally developed during World War II to create nutritious rations for soldiers. So that was never like designed even to be the optimal amount. It was designed to be the amount that would keep soldiers functional during a wartime period when access to nutritious food was limited. <laughs> They're eating MREs, essentially. So again, now, now you understand like... Which have gotten no better. <laughs> yeah, that's the benchmark. I think we can do better than the nutrient value that's contained in an MRE, meal ready to eat for people who are not familiar with that term. Not military. Yeah. <laughs> and the RDAs have been updated in many cases since World War II, but the numbers still represent the minimum amount of a nutrient a person needs in order to avoid a malnutrition-triggered disease like scurvy or rickets. And some other problems is that they don't take into account several factors which really play a big role in our nutrient absorption and nutrient status. And those include things like gender, age, health. So if you consider, for example, a pregnant woman or a woman who's trying to conceive or a teenage athlete that is doing highly intense glycolytic activity versus like a sedentary 45-year-old desk worker, those are going to be really different nutrient needs. And yet, in most cases, the RDA will just say it's the same. 
they are tend to be different for pregnant women and the elderly, but they miss a lot of nuance that needs to be considered when it comes to nutrient intake. And then there's two other problems with the RDA that are huge. One is that it doesn't consider bioavailability. So again, most people don't necessarily think about this or aren't aware of it, but when you see a food label and you see the amount of a nutrient that's listed on a label, let's say calcium, you might just assume that you're going to absorb 100% of that amount that's listed on the label, but you would be dramatically wrong <laughs> because let's take the example of calcium in spinach. The bioavailability of calcium from spinach is only 5%. So of the 115 milligrams of calcium present in a serving of spinach, which sounds like a lot, right? That sounds like, oh, great. Calcium is an awesome source or spinach is an awesome source of calcium. You're going to absorb six milligrams in a best case scenario. So what happens then with the RDA? If you look at the RDA and you say it's 1,000 milligrams of calcium, okay, I'm going to eat spinach. That's 115. And then you just go down the list, checking it off you will fall short because you haven't considered bioavailability and the RDA has not considered bioavailability. And then slightly related to that is nutrient synergy. There are, and this is why I'm still an advocate of meeting most of your nutrient needs from food, is that there are many cases where the presence of one nutrient helps with the absorption of another nutrient. And those nutrients often occur together in certain foods. So an example of that would be, we know that magnesium is required for the bio-utilization of vitamin D and actually vice versa. And so if you are getting enough vitamin D through sun exposure or supplements or cold water fatty fish or whatever, but you're magnesium deficient, you will still have low biological activity of vitamin D. And none of this is considered when the RDAs are used to assess nutrient intake. So it's a real mess. And even the opposite, well, two comments, one with bioavailability, even in supplements, I think people don't realize the, so I mean, the education is growing, which I'm very glad about, but let's say you go buy something, even tablet versus capsule, or the fillers that are in the supplement you're buying, or the form, let's say of magnesium that you've decided to buy, maybe the store you're buying it from has bought the cheapest, least bioavailable form, but because it's the cheapest, they can put 300 in a bottle and sell it to you for $6. So you're psyched because you get 300 for $6, but what you don't realize is you're not going to absorb very much. And we just don't get this knowledge or education. There's so much about middle school and high school that I would redo. <laughs> <As> far, <laughs> yeah. This would be some of this basic information around dietary, just dietary health is big. And then the second comment I wanted to make is, while magnesium helps vitamin D absorb, I don't think people realize that there are nutrients that block absorption. Absolutely. And so they're just popping everything at once, swallowing it with their coffee. That's got creamer in it, not realizing several things can cancel each other out and block absorption. Yeah, that example I used of calcium, the reason that bioavailability of calcium is so low in spinach is oxalate or oxalic acid. And that's actually what's inhibiting calcium absorption. And oxalic acid doesn't just inhibit calcium absorption, it inhibits the absorption of magnesium and other minerals as well. And it's not just in spinach, it's in a lot of dark leafy green vegetables. And in fact, like kale is also on paper a pretty good source of calcium, but you're not going to absorb very much of it. Cruciferous vegetables like broccoli are actually a better source of calcium because even though they're lower on paper than dark leafy greens, they're also lower in oxalic acid and therefore they don't tend to have the same level of inhibition of calcium absorption. Even things like tannins in tea can interfere with iron absorption. And in fact, my patients with hemochromatosis, which is an aggressive iron storage disorder that causes iron overload, will often advise them to consume calcium with meals if they tolerate dairy products and tannins like tea with meals because calcium and tannins can interfere with the absorption of iron. So there's all this stuff happening. This is why I think it's really easy to get yourself in trouble when you just follow the advice of, I think there are most people on the internet who are promoting a certain diet are actually well-meaning. In many cases, their life has been changed by adopting a vegan diet or a carnivore diet or whatever it is, they naturally sort of 
convey that enthusiasm and their own experience and assume and want to share that with other people. But in many cases, there's a lack of long-term data there. They maybe switched from a standard American diet to a vegan diet or from a standard American diet to a carnivore diet. And they feel so much better. But is that because of the particular diet they chose to, or is it because of what they stopped eating? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. that they were eating previously. In other words, would the vegan have felt just as good or even better if they went to a paleo diet that also removed all of the crap, but then contain animal products that have those essential vitamins and minerals? Or would a carnivore, same question, have felt just as good if they or better if they switched to eating animal products with some plant foods? And you know, I think there are situations where this is probably not the venue for it, but like where a carnivore diet can actually be healing over the short term. But I just do have concerns about the long-term nutritional value of the diet for all the reasons we've been talking about today. Absolutely. Well, actually, so speaking of that, you mentioned earlier some of the, in your research, you sort of come across like a top group that you seek most consistently to be deficient. Do you have like a top three or a top five that you see over and over and over and pretty much Americans, you can guarantee you're low with this. Yeah. So potassium, I mentioned, it's almost 100%, according to Linus Pauling. Vitamin D, 94%. Choline, 92%. And some studies actually also suggest that choline is 100%. Like virtually everybody doesn't get enough choline. Vitamin E, 89%. I think EPA and DHA, which are often not included in these essential, these because they're not essential, as we talked about. But I think the rates of deficiency of EPA and DHA would be right up there. And I think magnesium, actually, just in, last year in 2021, some researchers reassessed the RDA for magnesium. It has not been updated since the early 90s. And the RDA for magnesium is heavily reliant on average body weight. And what they found is during that, this is kind of shocking in and of itself, but during the past 30-something years, the average body weight for men and women has gone up by something like 30 pounds. And that would dramatically affect the RDA. It would increase it by a couple of hundred milligrams of magnesium per day. And so these researchers were saying, hey, look, we can't just keep using this RDA from a time where people weighed 30 or 40 pounds less on average than they do today. And people are already falling short of that RDA. Now you increase it to the point where it's like 650 milligrams per day for men and the average intake is still around 300. So that's a case where like I think almost everybody is not getting enough magnesium, especially if you use the more updated RDA. So I think those would be the top five. Okay. So potassium, choline, EPA, DHA. Potassium, vitamin D, choline, EPA, DHA, magnesium, and vitamin E. And vitamin E. Okay. You heard it here, people. <laughs> We're still in the top 80%. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't gotten down to like 60%. So there's many more after that. So... I mean, the other thing that like the elephant in the room here, Carrie, is I imagine some people are listening to this and they'll be like, okay, fine. Well, that applies to people who are eating pizza and chicken nuggets and drinking big gulps. And that is 60% of the calories an American consumes at this point come from ultra processed and refined food. And so, yes, absolutely. People who are eating those kinds of food are way more nutrient deficient than someone who's eating a nutrient-dense whole foods diet. There's absolutely no question about that. However, because of all of the factors we talked, well, four of the 10 factors we talked about, we didn't talk about some of the others. Even if you're eating a whole foods nutrient-dense diet because of declining soil quality, because of globalization of the food system because of growing toxic burden, because of disrupted gut microbiomes, we nutrient deficiency is still very common even in people who are doing all of the right things. That's what's like just ugh, heartbreaking for me. And it in my practice, I did test almost everyone for nutrient deficiency. And it wasn't the one test. It was all the different tests. Like and I would say in the course of 15 years of treating patients, there were I could probably count on two hands the number of people who didn't have multiple nutrient deficiencies. 
And again, I think you know my typical patient. They're not eating chicken nuggets and pizza. And these are people who followed my work for many years, typically before coming to see me. They were already on paleo, AIP, all kinds of different nutrient-dense diets, and they were still falling short. Yeah, I have a good friend, Dr. Kate Henry. She's a naturopath on the East Coast, and she uses chronometer. This is not sponsored at all. It just happens to be one where you enter in your... It's a good app. Right, it's a good app. It it enters in and it tells you what you're sufficient in, what you're deficient in. And uh, she does a lot with mood and mental. And she was explaining how just from the dietary intake alone, you know, depression and anxiety, and then even out from there that she has seen greatly improve, if not resolved, by fixing these nutrient deficiencies, repleting, replenishing the nutrient deficiencies is just absolutely mind-blowing because while we're talking about the actual nutrient themselves, what we don't have time to, but as people can hopefully allude to, is that these nutrients go on to do so much in the body. If you're listening to this thinking, I don't even know what choline is or what choline does, like it's massively important. You know, like vitamin E, oh yeah, I've heard that's an antioxidant, but vitamin D E does so much. Vitamin D does so much. Think of it this way. Yeah. Everything that happens in the body happens because of an enzymatic reaction. An enzyme is a protein. And every enzyme has micronutrients as cofactors. That's the easiest way to explain it. So there is nothing going on in the body that is not happening as a result of those micronutrients being available to drive those enzymatic reactions that are doing everything from growing tissue to regulating metabolism to producing hormones to firing synapses in the brain, every single process that happens in the body requires micronutrients. Dr. Bruce Ames, who's a a renowned microbiologist at UC Berkeley, one of my favorite researchers now kind of in the twilight of his career, it was famous for many reasons, but one of his kind of pioneering theories was, is called triage theory. And triage theory holds that Every enzyme, like I just said, everything that happens requires micronutrients. And there are basically two types of processes in the body. One, two types of proteins. One is a survival protein and the other is a longevity protein. And as the names imply, the survival proteins are doing everything that's required for immediate short-term survival. Longevity proteins are doing things that are helping us to live a long and healthy life. And the thing is, both of those proteins require the same micronutrients. So if there is a shortage of any of the micronutrients, the body will triage and give those nutrients to the survival proteins. And then there's not enough left over for the longevity proteins. That was a profound realization and a huge contribution to understanding the role that micronutrients play in long-term health. So if you understand that, then the natural conclusion is that the key to longevity and health span is to maximize our intake of these 40, roughly 40 micronutrients that Dr. Ames has identified as being involved in the body's key metabolic processes. Right. Oh my gosh. I love that. It's funny. I Hormones, the area of hormones is what I love to talk about and study in and educate on. And I would have so many people say to me, I was so stressed out. And two or three months later, I started losing all my hair. Why am I losing my hair? I said, because in the course of survival, hair is not important. So everything to make a hair is pivoting to go help you survive, deal with the stress, manage whatever happened during the stress. And while we would love to think that our hair and our head is important for survival, it's not. And so a lot of times when I would give that metaphor, people go, ah, damn. (laughs) Well, yeah. I was in survival. You're right. And that's a bummer. The body can't, at some point it can't do both, especially if you're deficient. Same thing with fertility. Yes. I had so many women who and men who've been who've come to me over the years and been diagnosed with infertility. I'm doing air quotes here for people who are listening. And I even wrote an article a while back, is it infertility or nutrient deficiency? <laughs> because what happens is when the body in its wisdom senses an environment of scarcity, like there's not enough nutrients to grow a healthy baby <laughs> and bring it to full term, then it just shuts down the processes that lead to conception. And that's a survival mechanism that would protect us from getting into a difficult situation in a natural environment. And the body would just wait in that case until conditions are better to bring a child into the world. And so 
if someone is nutrient deficient, they're basically a signal is being sent to the body. Hey, it's not a safe time to conceive. And in so many cases with these couples, as soon as we would replete their nutrient levels, all of a sudden they would conceive no more infertility. And of course, that's not true in hundred percent of cases. There are certain situations where there's a structural problem or whatever, but more often than not, that was my experience. I want to add one more thing here about nutrient repletion because it's really important. Sometimes I've had patients or just people who've written in and said, yeah, I started eating more B12 foods and, or I started taking this choline supplement or whatever. And it's like a week later and I don't notice any difference. (laughs) (laughs) It's not magic. Where's the magic? (laughs) Because we've been conditioned to have this instant response from pills that we take through medications primarily. Like you take Advil, you're going to feel that stuff in a couple hours, right? Or you take a, a Xanax or whatever these kinds of powerful pharmaceuticals are, it's like immediate. And so people believe that even subconsciously, unconsciously, they believe that it should be the same for a nutrient that they might have been deficient in for 30 years or 50 years. <laughs> like some of these deficiencies for adults are long standing all the way back to the point of childhood. And even when they, they could have even been born as a baby deficient because their mom was deficient in those nutrients. And so when you look at studies on nutrient repletion, In many cases, it's months or even years that we're talking about to restore optimal values of those nutrients. A prime example was a recent study was published just last year, I think about six months ago. You may have seen it, Carrie. It was one of the first long-term studies of multivitamin use in the elderly as a means of improving cognitive function. And what they found was that, yes, the multivitamin did improve cognitive function. What was remarkable to me was that that was true, even though the multi was Centrum. I might get in trouble for saying that, but (laughs) hopefully no one from Centrum is listening to this. Centrum is okay. It's not the worst, but it's, there are far, far higher quality multis on the market, even with Centrum. I'm sure they know that. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully they know that. Even with Centrum, people experienced pretty significant cognitive improvements. It was 60% reduction in the rate of cognitive decline over an 18-month period, which is just remarkable from taking a single multivitamin and not even a high-quality one at that. But the most interesting thing about the study for me was that over the three-year period, you saw a steady increase in cognitive function for the first two to two and a half years, and it didn't plateau until more than two years into the study. So if that hypothetical person that we were talking about was like, ah, after a month, I don't notice any difference. They were just at the very beginning of that curve of that upside down hockey stick. Just They would have missed all of the improvement that their fellow study participants got by sticking with it over that period of time. So I always tell my patients and our customers, like, you got to stick with this. It took you a long time to become nutrient deficient in many cases, and you can't expect an overnight miracle. Although that's not to say that people don't notice changes right away. They often do, but it takes time. You have to give it time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially like, you know, in the case of maybe a B12 shot or, I mean, I've had patients who were so vitamin D deficient and a week on vitamin D and they were like, oh my gosh, but absolutely. Lights are turned on. Yeah. In that case. Lights right. are turned on. Yeah. doesn't mean they're, it's a perfectly well-lit body, but the lights are starting to flicker back on. And yeah, but it does take time. I love, I'm glad you brought that study up because I know the impatience of a lot of people. I don't blame them, but at the same time. I'm one of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can totally relate, but I've seen the downsides of that, both in the scientific literature and also in my work with patients. So I know that it pays off to be patient and stick with it. And that's like, that's really why we created, I created Adapt Naturals in the Core Plus bundle, because I just wanted to give people a, a way of not only meeting, but exceeding their daily nutrient needs and just having full confidence that they can just take these supplements and set and forget and not have to worry about it, like not have to keep researching on the internet for hours a day, you know, and know that you're getting everything that you need. And because I think most people have better things to do in their life, honestly. (laughs) And so I just wanted to make it really easy for people to do that. And the feedback so far has been great that all kinds of incredible improvements, better cognitive function, better energy, better sleep, better mood, 
better performance in the gym and athletics and most important, just like the confidence and being able to relax and know that they're getting what they need. Right. So actually, let's end on that as we wrap up this podcast. Chris, first of all, where can people find you, right? Where can they learn from you and then more about this for those who are interested? So chriscresser.com is my main content site. There's lots and lots and lots, and I mean lots of content there. <laughs> Chris is prolific. Chris is prolific. <laughs> say, I think we have 1,300 articles, 18 free eBooks, podcasts, all that stuff. So go there and just ch- type in whatever you're looking for, and you, chances are you'll find some articles that are helpful, hopefully. And then adaptnaturals.com is the supplement site. And as I said, my mission here was to help people feel and perform their best by restoring optimal nutrient levels. And all of the ingredients are naturally occurring, bioavailable, food-based. For example, we have an organ supplement because organs are ounce for ounce the by far the most nutrient-dense foods we can eat. We have a mushroom supplement. In our multi, we're using the most bioavailable forms of nutrients like methylcobalamin for B12 instead of cyanocobalamin and 5-MTHF folate instead of folic acid. You can imagine carrying all the ones. And the emphasis there is just on like, if you think about the word supplement, what it really means, it means supplementing something, adding to something. So what we're adding to is a nutrient-dense whole foods diet. That should always form the foundation of what we're doing. And then you're supplementing that on top of that with these whole food-based, naturally occurring, bioavailable nutrients that are meant to kind of mimic the ancestral amount of nutrients that we would have gotten for the vast majority of our history. So that's kind of what it's all about. I love that. Trying to hit that optimal as opposed to just settling for the bare minimum, which is you got it. some of those current guidelines. Absolutely. Well, Chris, this has been amazing and very eye-opening. So thank you so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I really appreciate it. And like I said, people, I wasn't kidding. I have followed Chris for a long time. He is extremely prolific in his education. So go down that rabbit hole. And he's very easy to understand and the things that you read. So you don't have to be a clinician. You can be, but you don't have to be to to learn from him. So thank you again for being on today. Thank you, Carrie. This was a great interview. I enjoyed talking to you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope it was helpful. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.